be seated. So as we do each and every Lord's Day, let's join together God's people in taking our copy of God's Word and turn to our passage for this morning and for this week, which we find in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. So Acts 9, verses 19 through 22. It was last Lord's Day that we, we took a break from our study of the book of Acts to go to 1 Corinthians 11 and to look at what's commonly known as the words of institution for the, Lord, the Lord's Supper as Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about how they've been abusing the Lord's Supper. And we look specifically at how the Lord through Paul emphasizes a serious faith with God's people. Now, if we're going to be Christians, there's only one way for us to be Christians, and that's to be serious Christians. And that serious faith is seen in how we take the Lord's Supper. That we are serious about this sacrament. Not serious as in, as in somber, depressing, always wearing black. But serious in the goal, serious in the intention. Because God is serious about us. So serious that He gave His only begotten Son to live for us, to die for us, be resurrected for us, and to ascend for us. If he's going to be that serious about us, then we in faith should be that serious about him. So this morning we come back then to our study, the book of Acts. And we come back to a, a part about serious faith. As Luke is giving his testimony, or giving the testimony of the conversion of Saul. As we said, we looked at this before, that Saul's conversion is not only among the greatest events in the history of the church, it's one of the greatest in the history of the world. Because think about without this conversion, what we would not have. Without the conversion of Saul, there would be no New Testament as we know it. It would end at Acts and pick back up with Peter's epistle. Uh, there would be none of the New Testament church plants as we know them in the Bible. There would be none of the doctrinal emphasis that are considered central to the theology of the New Testament. Things such as union with Christ, justification by faith, sanctification by faith, the significance of Christ's death and his resurrection. Without this conversion, we wouldn't have the greatest theologian the church has ever known. And we wouldn't have these other great theologians who, who, who stand on the shoulder of Paul and Saul and all the doctrines they expounded in the New Testament. I think it's very safe to say that apart from the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the most important event in human history is the conversion of Saul. Because there we begin to see the church begin to explode and to grow and how the Lord uses Saul to take the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. And so this morning, Lord willing, we will see even more results of the serious faith through the Lord saving Saul. As we'll see us in our passage in Acts 9, 19 through 22. Let me pray for our time now together in, our, in the word. Lord, this is your word. This is your word breathed out by you. And it's profitable. For every bit of who we are, of our souls, of our minds, and of our hearts. But if we are trying to do this apart from you, 
Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we would fail. You breathed out this word by the power of your Spirit. We pray for that same power of Spirit to be with us this morning. To help us hear your word. To understand it as such. To be convicted by your voice. To be comforted by the grace of Jesus Christ. Do this, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 9, 19 through 22, and we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I imagine for many of us growing up, there's a copy or two or maybe many in our house of Winnie the Pooh. Maybe you had it growing up or maybe you read it for your children or you're reading it for your grandchildren now, but we're familiar. I imagine most of us are familiar with the world of Winnie the Pooh. In this world, Winnie has a friend named Eeyore. Eeyore is this old gray stuffed donkey. And what most, most people know and remember about Eeyore is his personality. He wasn't the most cheerful personality, was he? Eeyore's pessimistic. He's gloomy. He's the type that on, on a beautiful fall sunny day like this, he's looking for a rain cloud. He can't just be completely given over to happiness. His, his gloomy disposition won't allow for it. Every day is cloudy. Every cloud has rain. Nothing is just hunky-dory. Eeyore is pessimistic. He's gloomy. But to his credit, he does his best to enjoy and appreciate joy. I believe it's in, in one of the Disney Christmas specials about Wayne the Pooh. Right? Eeyore tells his friends that he's thankful for laughter, and for joy, and the high-spirited glee that, that fills my heart to overflowing. And as soon as he says that, he sighs because he's Eeyore. But somewhere in that gloomy, melancholy disposition, he has the ability to appreciate joy and laughter and to want it for others. I think Eeyore does a good job representing people who have that sort of disposition. I think some people are just born Eeyores. They tend towards being pessimistic. They can be kind of gloomy. They can be melancholy. They're always looking for a cloud on a sunny day. But to their credit, they can appreciate laughter and joy and want it for others. So I think it's, it's, it's helpful when we can refer to people as being an Eeyore. 
It's a good job of describing that sort of personality. But then there are people who are like, they're like Eeyore on steroids without a heart. They're like the Grinch. These are people who aren't just gloomy by disposition. These are people who make the active choice to be miserable. Again, they're not necessarily gloomy by nature, but they're able to appreciate and enjoy the, the, the emotion, the act of joy. No, these are people who choose to be miserable. And they find joy in making others miserable. We probably know some Eeyores in our lives. But we probably know some others who are like this as well. There are people, they are always critical. It doesn't matter what's going on, they're going to be critical. They're always looking for something that's wrong. They can't just be happy and settled. There has to be something wrong. And they tend to be happiest either when they aren't happy or they're making other people unhappy. They're, they're, they're miserable people who want nothing to do with joy. And because they want nothing to do with it, they, they don't want others around them to be joyful. They're miserable. And they just want others to be miserable. I don't like being around those sort of people. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand the sort of personality that, that treats joy as, as an anathema. That, that wants nothing to do with it. That they're, they're buzz killers. And I say all this because as we, as, we, as we are thinking through about Paul and his conversion, we need to understand that he wasn't like an Eeyore when it came to the Christian faith. Saul wasn't gloomy about it from his disposition, but he was fine about others being Christians. He, he, he wasn't the type that said, you know, it's not for me, but I'm glad you have it. He, he's the opposite. He's that latter personality when it comes to the Christian faith. He's, he's this rabid Grinch type who has no heart because Paul Saul at this point, we have seen, it's filled with this sort of pure, unfiltered hatred. He hates Christianity because he hates Jesus. And he hates the followers of Jesus. And he hates the joy that they found in Christ. And it's from that hatred that he wanted nothing more than to tear it all down, to destroy it, to persecute it out of existence. All he wanted for Christmas was for the joy of Christ to be erased from the face of the earth. He was miserable. And he had to have been miserable to be around, and especially so if you were a Christian. He was a walking example of the pure hatred of Jesus. But then Jesus. But then Jesus came for Saul and everything changes because Saul is now changed from the inside out as he is on the road to Damascus filled with hatred looking to wipe out the existence of the church from the face of the earth, the resurrected Jesus comes to Saul, apprehends Saul, and nothing is ever the same again. This man, who was intent 
on destroying the joy of faith in the church will now just a short while later issue this command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Take a moment with me. Let's think on that. This is coming from a man who at one time wanted to destroy any and all joy in Christ. There's no rejoicing in the Lord always with Saul. But now, through this divine intervention, divine inspiration, divine guidance, Saul is now commanding other followers of Jesus to act in joy. To always find their joy in belonging to Jesus and living to Jesus. To always rejoice in the Lord. He is so serious about this that as he sits in prison, he tells the church of Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He emphasizes it. He commands it twice. Saul is serious about joy. And this serious joy comes from a man who was once joyless but has now been changed by Jesus to be full of joy. This is real change in a real man that happened in real time. Usually, in the structure of my sermon, in the structure of other sermons, of other pastor sermons, is you kind of go through the text and you get to the end of the sermon and you make application. But we're going to move the application up to this point right here because I want us to think about something. What this passage is teaching, this, this, this testimony of Saul's conversion that goes on to testimony of the rest of Scripture is that true Christian faith will always change a person like it did for Saul. That's our thesis for this morning. True Christian faith will always, no exception, will always change a person like we see how it did here for Saul. That when a person in faith receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there will be a marked change in that person. And there will be a continued change in that person like there was for Saul. There will be no guessing or wondering about their faith. There will be no saying about them, well, you know, they say one thing, but they do another. A true Christian faith will always lead to a mind and a heart that has been apprehended by Jesus. So that how we live and what we confess will always match up with each other. True Christian faith will always, without exception, will always change a person. So my question for each of us this morning to think through and ponder is, can that be said about you? Have you been changed by Jesus Christ? Have you been changed through faith in the person and work of, the person and work of Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell? Have you truly and faithfully been apprehended by Jesus so that everything has now changed about you?
that you aren't just a Sunday Christian. That you may, you may occasionally show up for church on a Sunday. But that's the extent of your faith. And you're not a Christian when it suits the situation. Will this make me look good in these certain circles? Will this, will this benefit me over here? Are you living in, in the joy of knowing that you were saved from the very grasp of hell itself? Are you living in the joy that you have been saved by the one you once hated, but he so loved you that he died for you? Can you say, and can others say about you that there is something different about you because Jesus. Because of that faith that Jesus came for you. Jesus apprehended you. And Jesus entrusted you with faith. That you are different from how you lived before. And you are different from the world around you. I think it's sad to say, and we see more and more, that this isn't a popular way to think or live, even within the church. We see more and more professing Christians who, who live like they want Jesus, but they want their sin as well. I want to have my cake and eat it too. And we take it and we give it a warped, sinful distortion. I just don't want to go to hell. Hell isn't appeasing to me. Don't want to be there. So Jesus, get me out of hell. But I will not stop living in a way and manner that damns me to hell. True Christian faith will embrace Jesus as much as Lord as it does of him, Savior. It's a faith that's able to confess along with Paul for me to live as Christ. It's a life of faith that's now decidedly marked in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. See, a true Christian faith changes the priorities in our lives. It, it changes how we live our lives. It changes how we choose to, to raise our children or our grandchildren or how we relate to our family. It changes everything about you. Some years ago, an older and wiser pastor counseled a number of us younger pastors that when we started pastoring a church, that we needed to keep a weekly attendance sheet of who was at worship each Sunday. That as soon as the, the, the service was over and you're done the back door shaking hands to go to your office, your study, take out that sheet and, and keep record of who was there each Sunday. And to keep it on file going back three to five years. And you say do this so that at the end of the year you can hand out gold stars to those who've been at church the most for that year. Maybe perfect attendance, but at least for those who've been there the most. It wasn't for that. Rather, he counseled us to do this because of what he learned in all his years of being a pastor. And it was this. Whenever a church member called him to say, I need to come talk to you. I need counsel. There's something going on. What he learned to do was to set the appointment, hang up the phone, Go over to his file cabinet, pull out the drawer, get out the file 
of church attendance, worship attendance, and go back and see what that person's attendance and worship was like over the past month, six months, to a year, two years, three years. And what he found somewhere around 90 to 95% of the time, you know what he found? Those people whose life was unraveling weren't in church. They were the kind who would be there one Sunday, gone two or three. Be there for two Sundays, gone for two months. Wouldn't come to Sunday school because that was their time to do nothing. Would never darken the doors of the church for Bible study or prayer meeting. What that attendance sheet helped the pastor to discern and understand is that often the issues in that person's life, marital, children, addiction, abuse, usually stemmed from having priorities over Jesus. Because they weren't committed to the simplest act of commitment of Christ in the church and worship of God, then parts of their life began to unravel. Their priorities had gotten out of whack and their life was suffering for it. Because the true Christian faith will change the priorities in your life. Changes how we live, how we think, how we marry, how we raise our children. It changes everything. True Christian faith will change a person just like we see with Saul in our passage. And this is a rather dramatic change, isn't it? He's been used by Satan to destroy the church. Now Saul's been baptized. Now Saul has taken on the sign and seal of the covenant. And it seems that after this happened, that the Ananias is taking Saul to other Christians in Damascus to introduce him to them. <laughs> Ananias has to do this, doesn't he? Because if he just sends Saul over to his Christian family's house in Damascus, and he knocks on the door, and they open the door, and they see it's Saul, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to slam the door and run away screaming. Ananias has to take him around because he, who was once the enemy of the church, is now a brother in Christ. And Ananias has to testify to him about him like that. It would take somebody like Ananias, a respected member of the Christian community, to come in and to vouch for him. To say, look, look, look I, calm down. But the Lord appeared to me. That's what he told me about Saul. Here's our new brother in Christ. Imagine the joy of that time for Saul with this Christian community. Just to go to worship with him. The Lord said to sit in, sit in a pew and to sing, to sing songs with other Christians. To hear the scriptures read and explained, the, the joy of that. And then afterwards to sit with other Christians and, and to talk about it. To, to pray with other Christians. Even just to get around, to, just to, to, to have dinner with each other and, and to share in, in the joy of being a Christian. I really believe that contained this little verse here in Acts 9, verse 19, is a summary of some of the best times of Saul's life. 
Because what we're going to see is life gets pretty hard for Saul pretty quickly. But this brief period of time he had in Damascus to be with other believers was living out the blessings of Acts 2, 42 through 47 to be devoted to the apostles' teaching and preaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. I would say that this is the genesis of, Paul, of Saul's understanding of what it means to rejoice in the Lord. He rejoiced every time he went to worship. He rejoiced every time he got to sing the songs. He rejoiced at every Bible study. He rejoiced at every prayer time. He rejoiced at every meal with every Christian. This here is when he began to understand the joy of the Lord. That joy of worship. That joy of study of God's word. That joy of fellowship. That joy of prayer. This is a passage I think is pregnant with joy. But then we learn something about Saul's personality. Luke says that he immediately baptized, hangs out with the Christians in Damascus, but he can't wait to go to the Jewish synagogues there in Damascus to proclaim to them that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Now we come to understand that he is uniquely equipped to do this. In Philippians, he gives us his Jewish religious resume when he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, and to righteousness in the law, blameless. Saul tells two things here. He's as Jew as a Jew can be. Circumcised, of the right tribe, of the right people. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. You can't get more Jewish than Saul. And you can't get more religious than Saul. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees when it came to the law. He was going to keep every aspect of the law as best as he could. It is with this background that now apprehended by the living and resurrected Jesus, he's able to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it in such a way that the Jews were amazed. They never heard anything like this before. That they, they knew of Saul. The Jews synagogues knew of Saul by reputation. They knew what he had come there for. They say that he, he's kind of taking these people back to the chief priest. They know his bloodlust for killing Christians. They may even know uh, of, his, of his intellect, of, of, of how smart he is. But what they find in their synagogues is he takes their Old Testament scriptures and he shows them Jesus in a way they can understand. He does it in a way that leaves them without answers against it. There's no yeah, but. There's just, huh. Hmm. Okay. Jesus has saved Saul. And Saul is now intent to share this good news of salvation with all of his kinfolk. He knows the Old Testament better than they do. So he can go to the synagogues and he can say, brothers and sisters, let's turn to this passage. Let's look at this prophecy. Let's look at this narrative. Here's Jesus. Guys, this, this is what we've been missing. See what Isaiah says? You see what Nehemiah says? You see what Amos says? You see what Genesis 1 and 2 says? It's always been pointing to Jesus. We've been, the Messiah has come. It's Jesus. He's the Son of God. And as he does this, Luke gives us this interesting Information about verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength 
and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He wasn't getting stronger, right? He wasn't getting jacked and buffed and they're afraid they didn't listen to the gospel. He's going to rip their heads off. He's getting increasing in strength and the ability to share the gospel, which means the more he does this, the better he gets at it. And the better he gets at it, the more it confounds. Luke uses that word, it confounds the Jews who lived in Damascus. This isn't the Saul we knew of. And we have no answers against what he's telling us. Saul paints him into a corner. And he forces him to make a decision. Either you're going to believe the gospel or you're going to deny all of scripture. This is where we see the great defender of faith start to come out. You only have one answer. And that's faith in Jesus. Saul has now shared the gospel with him. And the Jews in Damascus are hearing it in such a way they've never heard before. And all this because the Lord is using a man who the resurrected Jesus has thoroughly changed through faith. A joyless man turned into a man on fire for Jesus who is full of the joy of the Lord. See, Saul stands as a testimony of what real change in faith in Jesus looks like. The question for us this morning is, have we made that change? Maybe our change isn't as drastic. Maybe we have that blessed testimony of being a covenant child of the church. And we, never, we have never known a day we didn't trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we can still discern that change in us that we are dying more and more to our sins and we're living more and more to Jesus. Maybe some of us have a, maybe a little bit more mildly dramatic testimony. Like I, was, I was pretty wild in my day. I did some things. Boy, when Jesus got me, it was all different. Maybe I, our testimony is a little bit more like Saul's. When people get around you, they go, there's, there's no way you could be a Christian. And you have to share, explain it to them. But true Christian faith will always change a person. Has a resurrected Jesus come after you? Has he apprehended you? Has he called you to that true faith that's now changed you and is still changing you? Because we all still need the gospel. None of us are perfect, none of us will be sinless. But as our shorter catechism teaches us, you now have that faith in Jesus Christ, which is a saving grace, by which you have received and rested on him alone for salvation, as he has been offered to you in the gospel. And because of this faith, you are now led to repentance unto life, which is a saving grace, by which you, a sinner, being truly aware of your sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ. Therefore, you grieve for and you hate your sins and you turn from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. Is that the change in your life? Do you have a life of faith like we see blossoming here in Saul? A joy in Christ, a joy in this, a joy in worship, a joy of being one another. 
A joy of praying with and for one another. The joy of fellowship is your life marked by the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. Is there a fire for Christ? Maybe it's just an ember at this point, but there's still a flame. And you want others to know about Jesus. The thing is, folks, true Christian faith will always change a person. And by the grace of the Almighty God, may that be the testimony of each of us here this morning, that there is a change in us. And we are dying to our sins. And we're living more unto the joy of God that glorifies Him because we enjoy being His and being in Him. Because true Christian faith will always change a person. Let's pray together.